Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the GovCon world, this podcast is for you. Thanks for joining us in our mission to make government contracts better, one contract at a time. As usual, this episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. You can check Skyway out at skywaymember.com, or you can hang out till the end of the episode where I'll talk a little more about it. All right, let's get started with today's episode. What is a letter contract? We've talked about letter contracts on the podcast before, and we covered them recently during a open forum in the Skyway community where we were talking about many different types of, of rapid acquisition strategies. The letter contract stands out because it's fast now, but it's slow or, or hard later. There's more work coming later. A lot of these rapid acquisition strategies are, are fast now, and then they're easy later because they're in place, or, or they're slower now, and but that they're easier later because, they're again, they're in place. They, getting something negotiated ahead of time takes longer now, but then it's done. But letter contracts, are, are they're one of those unique ones that they sound great out of the gate because you can get started now, but it comes with stipulations that can make them difficult later. All right. So that was very confusing. We're going to talk through <laughs> all that stuff that you just just talked about. We're going to explain it out here in just a moment. First, let's stop and say thanks. Thanks this week goes to Phil Ramos from Philatron. Philatron is a wire and cable manufacturer in the Santa Fe Springs, California area. Uh, Philatron manufactures a full range of bulk wire and cable and molded cable assemblies for lots of different industries. I actually checked. All of their cables are 100% American-made. So for that episode we did about the Buy American Act, <laughs> it's right up their alley. Philatron is also a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. I want to thank Phil Ramos for being an engaged Contracting Officer podcast listener for years and for being an active Skyway community member since 2017. It's Skyway members like Phil that ensure we are able to do this podcast for free week after week. Thanks, Phil. And if you want to learn a little more about the Skyway community, I'll cover that at the very end of the episode. Let's get into letter contracts, starting with FAR time. Letter contracts are covered in FAR 16.603. It says, a letter contract is a written preliminary contractual instrument that authorizes a contractor to begin immediately manufacturing supplies or performing services. And that word preliminary is what you're talking about. Unlike a purchase order or a credit card buy where you say, yes, sir, or ma'am, I would like one of those. Here is the purchase instrument, my card or my purchase order. You give me the product. We're done. This is the preliminary. This just gets the work started. Sometimes these are also called undefinitized contract actions if they're done inside, inside an existing contract. But the idea is you get started right away. They, they limit the contractor's expenditures, though, what the, what the contractor can spend to an established ceiling. So get started. Here's your ceiling. Don't spend more than the ceiling. However, comma, there, there's lots of room for confusion and complication and, and, quite frankly, frustration. If communication isn't clear throughout the, the process of definitizing the contract, there's one. Definitization is a word that sounds made up, right? So there's all these things about doing letter contracts like, how much money can I spend? When can I spend it? Who do I have to report to? One of the agencies I worked for as a contracting officer, I had to update the, the acquisition executive on how we were actually obligating the money against this contract because what they cared about was getting the money obligated. 
Well, in this case, think about what you're doing. You're obligating part of the money, but you're starting the work. What does that mean that it's done or not? It's like all these confusions can, can start because we're just going to get, we're going to start sprinting, doing the work, and then we'll, we'll fill, it, fill out the details over time. And that's a ripe situation for confusion. I want to go back to the name letter contract. The reason it's called a letter contract is because literally th- this starts out, well, back in the days of paper with a letter. <laughs> True. No, it's not, an email. Not a stack of paper that's a government contract, but a letter that says, here, get started. And it comes with some restrictions, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's a letter contract because it is just a letter that says, start some work. Here you go. If you have an existing contract and you're modifying the work or adding work within, like you said, within the scope of an existing contract, it's not actually called a letter contract then. It's just an undefinitized contract action. It's an engineering change proposal that you have to negotiate and close all the terms and conditions and pricing later. So a letter contract is a type of undefinitized contract action, but an undefinitized contract action is not necessarily a letter contract. Got it? We're we're, we're back to the rectangle and the square. The square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Back to the FAR. FAR 16.603 covers letter contracts. 16.603-2C spells out what needs to be in the letter contract. What is in that initial letter that the contracting officer sends to a contractor? The letter is going to tell you, start work. You owe me a proposal for this work by a certain date. You owe me this type of pricing data so that we can negotiate a price. It also tells you, we're going to plan to start negotiations on this date so that we can award the final contract on a date shortly thereafter. And this process, that process is called definitization. You definitize the contract. You make something that was indefinite definite. I used to get crap about that word all the time from the folks in my office that the property guys that, that work for me laughed every time I said that word because it's just another word that contracts people make up to confuse everybody else. Definitization. The date for the definitization, this, the FAR says shall, shall be the earliest practicable date. They don't want these letter contracts stretching out because it, it is not definitized. It's an open-ended contract that is literally sitting out there. Hey, we're going to keep working. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Not completely wide open, slightly bounded, but not very bounded. So they want to get it locked in as soon as possible. So it's limited to 180 days or before 40% of the work is complete, whichever is first. Now, that, that can be extended. The time period can be extended in extreme cases, but they put a limit on it for a reason. And you talked before about, about reporting requirements. This is one of the reporting requirements that I always had as a contracting officer. There is a, a regular report on open, undefinitized contract actions, which includes letter contracts and undefinitized contract actions within a contract. But the boss is checking up on you. You had to, you had to list the dollar value and, oh yeah, how many days old is it? And, and what percentage or how close to, to the 40% are we? Yeah, I, I think I told you before, I, I might have been the king of yukas at one agency for a while. I was I was on the bad boy list many, many times for not having things definitized in, in time. But we were moving. We were moving. We were getting work done. <laughs> yep. It's very easy to get it work done if you can start and then definitize later. Don't forget, though, that issuing a letter contract doesn't relieve you of the requirements for competition. You still have to write and have approved 
a justification and approval for other than full and open competition unless you compete it. If, if you didn't compete it, and that JNA has to cite one of the reasons that we talked about in the JNA episode, one of the reasons why you did not compete this requirement. And more than likely, the letter contract, the justification is going to be unusual, compelling urgency. Because the point of a letter contract is get started now. But your point is you still have to have the justification and approval done before you can issue the letter contract. So there's still, there's still that step of what authority am I using to award this letter contract that is mostly wide open that's not even definitized yet. It's going to be that JNA. Because the government is st- stepping out on a limb here and authorizing contractor to start up front, the FAR also limits the government's maximum liability in the case of a letter contract. 16603-2D says that the government's maximum liability shall not exceed 50% of the estimated cost of the definitive contract unless improved in advance before you reach 50% of the estimated cost by whoever authorized the letter contract. So what that means is the government's not going to be liable for more than half the money of the, of the expected value. So that ceiling was $7 million, make up a number, right? So three, before you get to three and a half million, you, that's the limit on the government's liability, unless it's approved on top of that. In times of extreme need, like after 9-11 or, or after the, the, uh, COVID-19, the government may change that. And in, the, in one case, the uh, Air Force acquisition or director of, what's he called? Anyway, head the, the head acquisition guy for Air Force put out a memo, but a policy memo after the COVID event that said, okay, I'm giving you the, essentially said the class deviation, I'm going to let you go to 90%, even though this far says 50 so in that case, they can go to 90% of the work before definitizing the contract and the, and the government's still going to be liable for up to 90%. That way, it basically gives the contractor more space to just keep moving forward. But again, COVID's kind of unique. <laughs> so I would expect most of the time, it's going to be limited to the 50%. Yeah, so I want to step back and make sure we explained what we're talking about when we say 50% of the estimated cost or 90% of the estimated cost. Before the letter contract is authorized, the contracting officer will ask the contractor for a ceiling rough order of magnitude. This is where we get that 50% or 90%. The contractor says, based on what you've told me now, the most that this will cost is $7 million. And that sets the basis for the government's maximum liability, half of that, 50% of, of that ceiling ROM, and ceiling is right in the name. Ceiling, rough order of magnitude. I see, Rom. That is the <laughs> cap. That's the most that the contract will be definitized for. A letter contract is limited to the funds available at the time that a letter contract is executed. So the government has to have $7 million in their budget in order to issue a letter contract for $7 million. If the government only has $5 million for this requirement, they can't issue a letter contract and say, oh, we'll negotiate it down later because it might not be able to be negotiated down later, Correct. and then they'll be anti-deficient, which is another podcast, I'm sure. In the event that contractor and government can't come to an agreement to definitize the contract within all these timelines we're talking about, the contracting officer can unilaterally determine a reasonable cost or fee, but they have to get approval to do that. And there's a clause that goes into the contract that, that says the contracting officer can unilaterally do this. However, comma there is an entire process of being able to appeal it. And like I said, it has to be approved. So 
the reason that communication is so important in this scenario is you want to make sure that the government and contractor are finding a way to agree on what the overall price is. Because in the event that this unilateral thing comes up, and I had it happen once where we were pushing up against that 180 days, and I was just about to have to use it, that sets the tone for a frustrating exercise of executing the contract. Because now you basically said, hey, contractor, I think it should be this. Suck it up. That's just a crappy place to be. So make a point out of the gate that you're going to agree on infinitizing the contract within the limits and work with the contractor. Because using this unilateral thing, it, it caused a lot of uncomfortable meetings <laughs> when I dropped that bomb in the conversation. This is one of those cases where it's good to be the king. The, the government has the ability to issue a letter contract, but one of the ways that they bound their risk is they say, hey, we're going to negotiate this later, but if we can't come to agreement, I'm just going to tell you what the price is and you're stuck with it. So if you're going to accept this letter contract, you have to accept the understanding that the government may define the total price in the end. All right, you mentioned clauses. There are three clauses that come with letter contracts. The first one makes the contractor accept the work by, by signing their, their name. The government can't, just can't oh, get, hand a contractor a letter contract and say, you have to go do this. The contractor actually has to accept it. That clause is 52216-23 execution and commencement of work. I would not ordinarily read a clause, but it's funny. It says the contractor shall indicate acceptance of this letter contract by signing three copies of the contract and returning to the contracting officer, not later than, than blank. Three copies. Yeah. It still says that the FAR says sign three copies of the contract and return them to the contracting officer. So yes, kitties, there was a day when you actually had to sign separate copies because you couldn't make copies easily and there wasn't electronic filing. And some of that stuff is still in the FAR. Yeah, that, that is funny to me. Yeah, that means we're old. I never <laughs> had to deal with that. I was going to say, I, I never, we, we made a, yeah, we, we, we signed one, one original and made two copies and, and, and there you go. <laughs> I don't understand why you get to mail three copies, but. Yes, this, this is a very dated, very dated clause that's uh, ripe for updating. We've been around the contracting business for a long time and never really had to deal with signing three original copies of documents. But it does tell you how long it takes to get the FAR updated sometimes. All right, that's the first clause. Contractor has to accept the work. The government can't just force them to do the work. The next clause limits the government's maximum liability and we've already talked about this, 52216-24, limitation of government liability. This is where the government enters the amount that's, that's 50% of the contractor's ceiling ROM. This limits them to half of what the letter contract ceiling was agreed to up front. We already talked about that. The third clause spells out the definitization schedule. 52.216-25 is called contract definitization. This tells the contractor what contract type we're planning to do a, a fixed price contract, a cost type contract, a time and materials contract. And it reminds the contractor that that definitive contract is going to include all the required clauses by the FAR and tells the contractor that they have to submit a proposal, including all the required proposal pricing data and cost data by a certain date. It tells the contractor the definitization schedule and reminds them that the contracting officer has the right to unilaterally determine the final price of the contract if negotiations don't go well. 
And a key point of this clause is it says the contractor agrees to begin promptly negotiating with the contracting officer in terms of the definitive contract. So right in the clause, right out of the gate, it says, let's communicate, let's get this thing going. We agree we're going to start negotiating right away. Because my experience with these sometimes is like, okay, let's get it in place. And then it's a month before we start talking about negotiating. And before you know it, 180 days is coming up fast. <laughs> and everybody's scrambling and frustrated. So make sure you jump on that right away. Let's talk about where this fits in the acquisition process, where in the acquisition time zones and the execution time zones. A letter contract is issued when the government has has a requirement and has done some market research so they've identified contractors that are capable of doing the work and they've either competed it or written an exception to full and open competition. So they have they they don't quite have a request for proposal written yet, but they've got enough to say, go do this kind of thing, get started now. And during the execution time zones, you're, you're definitizing the work. So it's you're very you had this weird thing where during the performance zone, you're still kind of living through managing the contract. So this is a unique exercise of the performance zone because you're kind of you're putting the you're putting the parachute together while you're falling. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the that, again, that's kind of how it feels. If you're not familiar with the acquisition time zones are in episode number three and the execution time zones are in episode 84. Let's get specific on the government side, Kevin. On the government side, this, this gets the work started now, but it's not a definitized contract, right? So there's this risk of you're limiting your negotiation leverage as, a, as from the government side as contracting officer, because as the work goes on, it's becoming an actual result. You have actuals. You say, this is what it actually costs to do the work. So the negotiation becomes defined by what's actually happening. And that's what makes the definitization a little more complicated. It, it's easier now. You send a letter with those clauses we just talked about. You fill in those little blanks and boom, they start working. But this really pushes the more difficult work, the, the definitization, down the road. Because you got to firmly define the scope and the schedule. I mean, we had a, one, one you know, I think the longest letter contract I had was two pages. You know, I got a little wordy in that one. And it was two pages, right? So imagine and that one was a $7 million contract. So it's a $7 million letter contract that loosely defined the scope and schedule. It loosely defined the, the price and fee, like how much profit there would be on this. And then, of course, the terms and conditions, we still had to work through what all things were going to apply, right? And keep in mind, this, this is on a timer. I mean, the, the things that are happening, they stack up with the rest of your workload. So it seems like, oh, well, I can push off the definitization. I'll get to that later. But then new work keeps coming in. And the reason I mention this is we awarded, in this story, we awarded the letter contract on February, I think it was February 18th. Well, fast forward six months, what's happening during that window? That's proposals and RFPs. And, and then now we're into fourth quarter. So we get to six months later, which is August. I got a lot of other work I didn't have in February. And that's how I learned to do this badly is now I'm trying to get source selections done and make sure I definitize the contract. So that ticking clock can be loud in the back of your head and, and, it, and it can be very frustrating from the government side when you're not getting it done quickly. That's why they put that 180 day thing in the FAR so that there is a clock ticking to make you get them done. Because if you don't, like you said, you're negotiating based on the work being completed the government can't really negotiate much if the contractor's already done the work the way they wanted to because the contract wasn't definite enough. The FAR makes sure that letter contracts just aren't handed out like candy. FAR 16603-3 is limitations, and that tells you that the use of a letter contract has to be approved by the head of the contracting activity, 
that's somebody way up in the chain or a designee. And that approval has to be in writing. Flipping over to the industry side, industry loves letter contracts, not, not negotiating them, not definitizing them, but they love them <laughs> up front because you get the work now and you don't have to compete. Like, like we said before, in most cases, a justification or approval for other than full and open competition is required. So this is a sole source contract handed to you now. You get to start working now and you get to start getting paid for the work now, even though all the details aren't fully agreed to yet. So you're writing the proposal while you're actually executing the work and getting paid rather than waiting a month or two until you've written a proposal, submitted it, had the government analyze it, negotiate it, then you get to start. It's great. The issue comes if the government office is really busy or if your company's really busy and your proposal takes too long or the government doesn't have time to evaluate it or negotiations are otherwise derailed. There is a limit that you can't work past 50% of the funding, 50% of your CROM, before definitization. So if it's a shorter-term contract that they got started, that 50% could come really quickly, not, not 180 days out. That 50% could come 30 days into the contract. So there is some speed necessary here. Another drawback is the C in CROM is sealing rough order of magnitude. You're taking a wild guess, not a wild guess, an educated guess at what the, the price is going to be. But that ceiling can't be a guess because when you submit your proposal and the government negotiates, they're not going to give you a dollar more than that ceiling. Because that's the money they have, among other reasons. Remember, the government can't authorize a letter contract for more than the dollars they have in their budget. So you can't just say, well, the ceiling's $200 million for something that's going to cost $100 million, you know, just in case. That way we don't exceed it. You can't say that because the government will never be able to issue the contract. So you have to be close, but you have to also have enough space in there for all of the unknowns if your understanding of the requirements weren't quite the same as the government's and it's more work than you thought it was going to be. Also, to rewind to the concept that the industry has all the negotiating power because they're already working and government offices may may not like the fact that, oh, wait, now we're negotiating based on actual expenditures. So there's nothing for me to negotiate. The contractor already spent the money. This is why the government has that little backstop, that if negotiations aren't going well, if the government can't come to agreement with you, Mr. Contractor, Mrs. Contractor, they can unilaterally decide that's what the price is. So yes, industry has negotiating leverage to a point, but the strength of that negotiating position climbs, climbs, climbs as, as more and more actuals are incurred and then falls off a cliff when the, the government decides, we've had enough of you, here's the price. So it's not all one-sided is what I'm trying to say. And the other thing I should be trying to say is, let's wrap this up. <laughs> I was waiting for a good segue there. A letter contract is, is faster now. It's faster than you know most other acquisition strategies, particularly for complex things. But it can be more work later because you're pushing off that negotiation till later. So you still have to do it, right? Other acquisition strategies, you negotiate up front and you agree with the terms and conditions, you get it all set up and then poof, you're agreed and you start to work. This time you're, you're doing them in, in concurrently <laughs> and it, it, it stretches out the work a little bit longer. 
Yeah, remember, you're writing a proposal and negotiating it while you're doing the work. And that's something that's usually not happening. <laughs> usually you do that before you start the work. So you're double booking everyone's time until you get it definitized. And that's why I can feel like you're jumping off a cliff and building the parachute on the way down because you, you need to get that parachute done before you hit the pavement. <laughs> and all of a sudden the government says, suck it up. This is your price. Now, the reason this is relevant now, we, usually we do a lot of timeless stuff and all we've talked about is pretty, you know, it's pretty evergreen. But right now in the, in the middle of, of, of the COVID epidemic, we may see more of these letter contracts. So it's important to understand how they play out and how, like you talked about, it's great to get that work but you got to make sure you understand what you're signing up for, what that ceiling is. And you're like you said, it's an educated guess what that ceiling would be. Yet another opportunity for clear and open communication between government and industry. All there right, Kevin, go. that's good for today. I'll talk to you soon. See you, Paul. Okay, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to check out the Skyway community at skywaymember.com. The Skyway community is where our team of former contracting officers helps our members, our customers, our friends learn, win, and grow in the government market. If you've ever wondered what your government contracting officer is thinking or why the RFP says this and not that, Skyway's team of contracting officers breaks the code for you, not only through our training materials, but through personalized consulting. Once again, you can check that out at skywaymember.com or call us at 877-884-5280, 887-884-5280. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.